Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. I hope you guys had a joy-filled time with your family this and lower loved one this holiday season. My name is Mike Wittig. I serve here as the Director of Student Ministries and College Ministries, and it's just a joy to be able to serve in that capacity, and it's an honor to be with you this morning opening up the Scriptures. If you guys have a Bible, if you could turn to Matthew chapter 18, if you have it on your app, that's great, or you can see it on the screen there as well. Before we dig in, I um, just want to give a shout out to the kid here, and I know you're here somewhere, who had your heart set on an Xbox One for Christmas. It's all you had dreamed about, all you longed for. And a few days ago, you peeled back the wrapping paper, punctured open the box, and you got a sweater vest, and you got a Jesus Calling devotional. Um, our hearts are with you. We want to mourn as a family with you. We have an altar here and counselors after. If you're looking for guidance, we'd love to help you with that. And to the husband who bought his wife a treadmill for Christmas this year, we have marital counseling available as well. So keep that in mind. We're full service around here at Bethel Church, all about your needs. So Matthew 18, um, 21 to 22. Before we begin, just as a, as a uh, preface, my wife and I, we love watching sitcoms. It's these 22-minute television shows, comedy usually. And there's always characters that have some conflict and some issue. In the very beginning, there's some issue or drama. And how a sitcom usually works is by the end of the 22 minutes, say like Seinfeld or Everybody Loves Raymond, at the end of the 22 minutes, everything gets resolved. There's resolution. There's harmony. Everything's put in the box nicely, neatly. There's a bow placed on it. And we can all go about our day feeling good. Like, yes, everything got resolved. The drama was satisfied. And I just want to give you a warning before we really begin. These words that we are going to read of Jesus, this text is not like that. There's no box. There's no nice, neat little bow We're going to get into some messy, hard, difficult words. Words that aren't meant necessarily to make us feel comfortable. Words that aren't meant for us to explain them away. Words that we have to deal with. And they are here, I think, to push us out of our comfort zone, to point us to a higher way, and ultimately to exalt and glorify Jesus Christ. So you guys ready to dig in? Matthew 18, I will read if you guys would follow along, starting with verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, be with us right now. Be with me as I speak. Help me to understand your words and communicate them clearly. Be with your people as we listen. Holy Spirit, be here now. We're asking for your grace to come be the balm to our wounds right now. There are a lot of hurting hearts in this room. There's a hurting heart on the stage. And I pray, God, you would heal us right now. I pray we would walk out of here with a greater awareness and appreciation of your love for us and a greater ability to extend love to others. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So we just read the passage. Peter comes up to Jesus, and he, um, he asks Jesus about forgiveness. You know, how many times am I supposed to forgive someone? Seven times? Now, the thing to keep in mind as you read that, at the time, the rabbis taught that all you had to do to fulfill God's law was to forgive someone three times. So after three, they're out. Three strikes and they're out. You've done your duty. You have fulfilled the obligation of God. You fulfilled the obligation of Scripture. So that kind of thinking, that law-based thinking, is in the forefront of Peter's mind. And he comes to Jesus. And you can just kind of picture Peter looking for a little bit of congratulations from Jesus, looking for a little pat on the back, you know, like he's probably forgiven someone a few times. And he says, Jesus... It's not like I have to forgive him seven times or anything, right? I mean, you're here, you're new, you're the cool new thing. Tell me it's not three times or seven times. And Peter is thinking in terms of the law, in terms of justice, of fairness. And Jesus comes and he flips the script as he always did. And he speaks of a higher way. He speaks a word right here that is completely counterintuitive completely otherworldly that does not make sense to us jesus speaks the word of grace to forgive someone not just three times not just seven times but 77 times now 77 isn't like some magical number where if you hit 78 you're good he's talking about here and he's calling peter and us to a life of perpetual forgiveness, to not look to settle the score, to throw away the ledger, to stop keeping accounts. He's saying to forgive without stopping. That's challenging, isn't it? If you let that sit, if we don't explain it away, if we let his words sit before us, if we sit at the feet of the rabbi and actually listen to him say these words to us, they're haunting. You know, Thomas Jefferson is famous for a lot of things. One thing he did that's famous was he would take scissors and he cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. So, you know, he didn't agree with the miracles of Jesus or the miracles in the Old Testament. So he cut that part out, you know. So what he had then was a Bible he created in his own image, a Bible that he totally agreed with and he would read and enjoy that Bible. And it's almost like I read this passage, I think through the implications here, and I almost want to cut that out of the Bible. I don't want to listen to that. That's hard. It hits too close to home. Now we're talking real life here. This is not just theory. This is hitting home. So should we just cut this verse out with scissors? Can we ignore it and never talk about it? Or must we let the words of the man who walked out of a grave stand? Must we let them have their day? Let them shock us. In the 1980s and the 1990s, there was this famed serial killer, infamous serial killer. He went by the title The Green River Murderer. His name was Gary Ridgway. And throughout that time, he abducted, abused, and murdered 48 young ladies. This guy's a monster. 
In 2001, the feds caught him, captured him, and um, he confessed, and he showed the feds where the bodies were buried. So think of that. In 2001, for some folks, that had been 15 years. They had no closure, hadn't even had a body. And in 2003, they had his hearing, and they invited at the hearing the family members of those who were hurt, broken, damaged by this guy. They invited them to come and sit. And they allowed each one to come to the podium and to speak to him. Say whatever words you want to say. And I've seen the video for this. It's amazing. They stood there, many of them yelling at him, cursing him, blasting him, screaming at him. All of it, I think, totally justified, you know. This guy deserved it. Others told stories about their wife, their mom, their daughter, about the light she brought to their life and how he had sucked that light from their life. How he had wreaked devastation to their church, to their community, to their home. And the crazy thing is, as they're pouring out their heart to him, just wailing and crying at him, he's sitting in the front, and he's just stone-faced. No remorse, no empathy, nothing. He just stares distantly at them. The face of evil. And then something really unexpected happened. Something that is not of this world, something that does not make sense. It does not resonate. An older gentleman walked to the podium. He was a father of one of these girls. He walked to the podium. He had a large belly and a white beard. And he grabbed on like this. Tears were flowing down his eyes. And he stared Gary Ridgway right in the face. And I want to read to you what he said. He said, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, what God says to do, and that is to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. And immediately, Gary Ridgway began to break down and cry uncontrollably. All the just anger directed at him, all the wrath, all the cries for empathy, none of it pierced his fortress, pierced his heart. Only the forgiveness of a father. It broke him down. But that is hard. Those of you who have kids... That's hard. Almost impossible. Alexander Pope famously said, to err is human, to forgive is divine. Why would he say that? Because everyone's forgiving? No, because hardly any of us forgive. When someone does, it's almost a godlike thing. It's from the heavens. It's not of this world. To forgive is divine. And you know, I'll just be honest with you guys. I so bristle at this command. I wrestle with this command here to forgive. 
perpetual, ongoing forgiveness? Come on. I prefer, and perhaps you as well, we prefer to hold grudges. We prefer to be bitter. At least that gives me some sense of control, right? At least I'm in control here. When I was growing up, I used to read comic books, and one of my favorite characters went by the name The Punisher. He wore a black t-shirt, giant white skull, and his origin story goes like this. His name was Frank Castle. He had a beautiful family, and the mob came and killed his family. And so he becomes the Punisher. He's a vigilante. He's out for justice, out for retribution. He hunts down the killers, and he hunts down anyone who needs taken care of. He's a man of justice. And I so resonate with that, right? When I'm hurt, and likely when you're hurt too, you know, we get into punisher mode. We need to get this guy. We need to hurt him, make him feel what I have felt. And we, we take it and wrap it in Christian language. Come on, God, get him. Christianize our wrath. You know, I read this passage in Matthew 18. I read it. I let it sit, and I think to myself, you know, God, you don't understand. If you knew the transgressions against me, how could you call me to this? And I look at this room. God, if you knew, if you knew the hurt in this room, what was done to folks in this room, you would never ask for this. You would never command this. This is too much. It's too much. In the 90s, there was a pop song by a girl named Rebecca Lynn Howard and a little pop ditty. In the song, she writes about her man who has confessed that he's been unfaithful to her. And she pins these words. She says, You dropped a bomb right where we live and you just expect me to forgive? Forgive, that's a mighty big word for such a small man. And I'm not sure I can. And I hear those words, and I get that. I'm not sure I can, God. I read this passage, and I'm just not sure I have what it takes to do what you're asking me to do. So many times when we're wounded, we have no desire to forgive the person. Now, honestly, most of the time, the people that hurt us don't even come and ask for forgiveness. They're oblivious to it, it seems. But let's say that one time out of ten, they actually do come to us. I have no desire to extend them the courtesy of my forgiveness. I want to hold on to it. I want to hold something against them. I want them to jump through hoops. These words are difficult words, aren't they? Forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is hard for a bunch of different reasons. A few I'll just make a note real quick. It's hard because... Forgiveness comes at a cost to the person who is extending it. The forgiver has to take on the debt, has to give a little bit of himself away or herself away to absorb and make room for that debt. So here's an example. I have a black truck right outside here in the parking lot. Now, let's say you need to borrow my truck to go to Home Depot. You got to get some drywall. I give you my keys. You take my truck, you go get some drywall from Home Depot, you go to your house, you drop it off, you're coming back. On the way back down Broadway, you veer into a pole, 
and smash the passenger side of my truck. And you have just enough in the engine to get it back here. It's puttering, it's smoking. My bumper is scraping the asphalt and sparks are flying up as you pull in here. And you pull it right in front of the church and you give me my keys. And you say, hey man, I don't have any money. Here's your truck. Here's your keys. Will you forgive me? I'm sorry. Like, what do I do? I can't really come after you. You don't have any money. What are my two options? I can be really bitter and angry at you. Or I can forgive you, right? Really, the two options. If I forgave you, does my truck just get magically fixed? It's still a mess. Someone has to pay for it, right? By me forgiving you, I'm saying I'll pay for it. I'll absorb the hit. You guys see that? Forgiveness comes at a cost to the one granting forgiveness. Forgiveness is also hard. Forgiveness is hard because it takes faith. Faith that God's in control, that he knows what he's talking about, that his words are true, that he's ultimately just. And let's be honest, we're a people of little faith. We have a hard time resting in and believing in Jesus. But let me just... uh, ask you to fancy me for a minute here. Just think through this. Let's say Christ is right. The man who could not be contained by the grave. Let's say he knows what he's talking about. The man who spoke creation into existence, who formed you in your mother's womb. Let's say he knows how we are wired, how we're built. What if he's onto something here? Maybe he understood how damaging it is to our physical, emotional, and spiritual health to hold on to grudges. You know, numerous, countless studies, secular studies, have shown it is toxic to hang on to bitterness. To cling to it, we want to do that, that's toxic. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, it'll destroy us. Maybe Jesus knows that. So my wife and I, we went to a marriage retreat a few years ago called Weekend to Remember. And at the retreat, I took notes, and I was reading my notes this week from the retreat, and I came across this quote, and I wanted to pass it along. It's from Lewis Smead. And here's what he says. Forgiving someone is setting the prisoner free. Later you will find that the prisoner was you. Maybe you've heard this one. Bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. In Christ, I think here, as hard as this is, as much as we don't like that, he's calling us out of that, calling us to a higher way, to the way of grace. Something that doesn't make sense, something that is out of this world, something otherworldly. And let me just uh, go back to the passage really quick. I'll read it again. Matthew 18. Let's look at this from a slightly different angle. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times. 
seven times. So we naturally read this story. I'll be honest, I do this. And we see ourselves in this story as the Peter character, right? We are the ones who have been sinned against. And rightly so, we have been. But what we so often fail to see is that we also are the transgressors. We've hurt other people. Many times you don't even realize the joke you made about someone, how that hurt them. The time you yelled at your child that you've forgotten about, he hasn't forgotten. The word you said to your spouse, you knew just exactly the right words to use to hit him in the vulnerable spot. Spouse hasn't forgotten. We, we're not the, we're not the heroes of the story. Sometimes we're the villain. The uncomfortable fact is that we are the ones also who have transgressed 77 times and more. We aren't as innocent as we assume, and that's a humbling thing just to process, just to keep in the back of your mind. And, you know, looking through this room, a lot of you I know, there's a lot of people in this room right now who feel pain and hurt from what someone has done to you. And I just want to encourage you, in your woundedness, in your hurt, as you wrestle with this and you say, God, I don't know if I can do this. How can you call me to this? Surely I'm the exception. As you wrestle with that, please don't lose sight of the fact that God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And he continues to forgive you over and over. He has this rhythm of forgiveness towards you. Please don't lose sight of the fact that God has forgiven you. Don't move beyond that. Set the parking brake right there underneath the waterfall of his love and forgiveness and acceptance. Stay there. Linger there for your life. Don't move beyond it. Let the forgiveness and love of God for you, sinner, for me, sinner, let it rock you. Let it take you out at the knees, put you on your face before him. I wrote this down this morning, just kind of had a thought. The only way we will stop obsessing over the hurt we feel is not by ignoring it. I mean, it, we feel it. It's not explaining it away. It's there. The only way we will stop obsessing over the hurt we feel is to start obsessing over something else. Let that something be Jesus. Let it be his radical, scandalous love for you, even in your sin. Love that pursues you at your worst. So, a few days ago, we celebrated Christmas, and Christmas is about God coming down, God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus as a baby who would go and pay the ultimate price for us, right? 750 years before Jesus came, God wanted to demonstrate to the world and to his people about his love and his forgiveness. There's a man who lived on the northern side of Israel. His name was Hosea. And God called him to be a prophet. And so many times, um, God used prophets to speak 
Be my mouthpiece, God would say. Speak for me on behalf of my word. Open your mouth and speak. And this was a time when God said, Hosea, I want your life to speak for me. So he goes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I have a mission for you. I have an assignment for you. And you know, Hosea is ready to go. He has his three-part sermon outline, ready to go speak for God. And God says, that's not the kind of sermon I want you to preach. I want you, Hosea, to go marry a prostitute. You know, wait a minute. I got my sermon ready. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I went to seminary, God. I'm good, you know. I've always had an eye for church girls. Um, no. Go marry a woman of the night. Oh, man. Okay. Sure. I'll do it. So Hosea goes and marries a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. Bummer of a name, right? <laughs> Gomer. So it's bad enough you got to marry a prostitute, but hey, Gomer, what's up? You got to keep saying that every day. Got to keep that in mind, kids. When you marry someone, you got to say their name every day. So choose wisely. <laughs> so yeah, he, he marries Gomer and she's a prostitute and things seem to go okay at first, you know? They have a few kids, a boy and a girl and a boy. There's ups, there's downs, there's stresses. But then one day, he can sense a little distance in his wife. Gomer begins to get a little bit restless, has a little bit of a wandering eye. Maybe, perhaps, Hosea was gone too many hours at the office. Maybe she felt second rate, like his work was his first love. Maybe he stopped pursuing her. Maybe he stopped taking her on dates. We don't know. But she began to get restless. And one day, Hosea wakes up. And he reaches his arm out to feel the body of his spouse. And he feels just the coldness of her pillow. And he starts getting this, like, tense feeling in his stomach. And he jumps out of bed. He opens the kid's room. She's not there. He goes to the kitchen. She's not there. He checks the basement. She's not there. She's gone. Hosea is now a single dad, raising three kids on his own. Now imagine, he's a man of great regard in the community, right? He's a prophet. He speaks for God. And this guy, you want us to listen to this guy, he can't even keep his marriage together. Can't even keep his wife around. Imagine the shame he would feel walking through the town, seeing the stares, the glances He probably had those friends who came up to him and said, Oh man, good riddance. I never saw what you saw in her anyway. You could have gotten so much better. And he would hear those words, but he would go home and cry. Feeling like somebody had taken a fist and punched him in the soul. The one person who knew him better than anyone else in this world had said, I don't want you. I reject you. And abandoned him. Left him hanging with the kids. You know, time passed. Life went on for him. And at the time, Israel had this view of God 
and his love that said, love is about self-gratification. Love's about what I want. And God says, I want to show Israel. I want to show my people what real love looks like. I want to show them what real forgiveness looks like. So he goes back to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I have an assignment for you. I have a plan. Okay, sure. You know, if uh, that last one, you know, kind of left me ragged over here, but I'll trust you again. Sure. And God says to him, go get her. Go pursue Gomer. Go win her back. Go buy her back. Go marry her again. Can you imagine? Wait a minute, God. This is the woman who ripped my heart out. I'm a broken man because of this. But I'll trust you. I'll do it. So Hosea, this prophet of God, travels to the wrong side of town, the shady part of town, the side where none of us want to be seen walking around, especially not a man of God's word. And he starts knocking on doors. Have you seen my wife? I'm here for Gomer. Have you seen her? And someone says to him, oh, dude, I didn't know you two were still together. I'm so sorry, bro. I thought you guys were done. She's that way. And I want to read to you from Richard Strauss what he says. He says, Hosea found her ragged, torn, sick, dirty, disheveled, destitute, chained to an auction block in a filthy slave market. A repulsive shadow of the woman she once was. We wonder how anyone could love her now. That's unlovable. But Hosea, his love was not of this world. His love was a bit radical. His love didn't make sense to us. Matt Chandler is quoted for saying, Love says, I've seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. Love sees the ugly parts of us and stays. And Hosea stayed. He bought her back from slavery. He forgave her. He poured out his love for her. He married her again. And it kind of reminds me of Jesus, you know, buying back what was already his to begin with through his death. She was already Hosea's that he bought her back again. And this story, the story of Hosea and Gomer, let me just tell you right now, I've seen a lot of television, probably too much in my day, but this story would make for a terrible sitcom. There's no bow. It's messy. This is rated R, kind of like our lives. But this is a testimony of the unwavering, relentless love of God for you, his people. You know, some have said that the story of Hosea and Gomer is the greatest picture of God's love in the entire Old Testament. I think I agree. The name Hosea here means salvation. So who is Hosea? He's Jesus to us. Who's Gomer? That's us. We're Gomer. We're the train wrecks. The ones who have blown it and continue to blow it. 
Yet our Hosea pursues us. He comes to the wrong side of town, knocking on doors for us. He won't stop. He'll even come down here as a baby. Walk among us, get his sandals all dirty. Get mocked, ridiculed, cursed at, made fun of, punched, whipped, scourged, hung on a cross in front of his mom. He'll even do that for us. When we start to see ourselves as Gomer, the one who is in need of forgiveness, and we see our Hosea coming at us relentlessly, this passage at least begins to make a little more sense to us. God's not calling us to do something he hasn't already done for us. And I said earlier, forgiveness is hard because it comes at a cost, right? It comes at a cost to the one who grants forgiveness. In our case, that cost was borne by Christ. He absorbed the punishment. God's wrath for us, for you, for your sin, for your transgression, his wrath wrath does not just go away. He doesn't just sweep it under some cosmic rug and say, hey, we're good, I love everybody. His wrath has to go somewhere. The judgment has to go somewhere. You know who took it for us? Jesus. Like a lightning rod, he absorbed the full weight and fury of God's judgment for us. Our Hosea bought us back with his life. He forgave us, loved us. That's the love of God for us. That's the God we worship. What an amazing God this is. Truly. C.S. Lewis has a helpful quote. He says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Think about Jesus right now, hanging on the cross, tortured, twisted, mangled for you. You know what he says to the people who are stabbing him, spitting on him, mocking him? The words out of his mouth, Our Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Show them grace and mercy. They don't know what they're doing. When we understand this, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ for us, it's the key for us to then live lives of forgiveness. It's the only way. It's the foundation on which our whole life is built, the gospel. We never really get over it. And from God's love for us, we strive, we fail, but we strive to love others. Not to earn, but because Christ has earned for us. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, period? No. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. To live a life under the waterfall of that love. And forgiveness, taking it in and extending it to others. That's what he's calling us to. So I'm done. I'm going to just wrap this up. But if you would do me a favor, use kind of your imagination here, put your imagination cap on the one that you kind of pushed aside after grade school. 
you'd put that on and just for me picture yourself right now you can have your eyes closed or open it doesn't matter but picture yourself in a courtroom you're sitting there and you're guilty you've committed cosmic treason against god you've not even fulfilled one of his ten commandments let alone all ten You've clamored for his throne. You've longed to be the Lord of your life. You have failed to submit to his lordship every day. You've chosen any and everything besides him to pursue passionately, right? You're sitting there dead to rights. They got you. And the Bible says they got all of us. We're toast. We're sitting there in the courtroom. And you know what we're anticipating? We're anticipating the punisher to come out with his words of judgment vengeance and wrath we're deserving of someone to go to that podium to curse at us to yell us to yell at us to scream at us to shake us to try and get us to understand what we have done that's what we deserve but we're sitting there in the courtroom and something unexpected happens something that doesn't make sense to us to our finite minds God the Father walks to the podium. He looks you in the eye and tears are flowing down his face. And he says to you, to his children, you know, a lot of people in this room hate you. But I'm not one of them. Because of the person and work of my son on your behalf. Because I have poured out my just wrath upon him. Because he has died the death that you deserve and lived the life that you could never live, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Friends, though we have transgressed 77 times and more, He loves us. Our Hosea has pursued us, bought us back, redeemed us, and forgiven us. You are forgiven, my friend, if you're in Christ. And if you're not, I would ask afterwards that you would come up up here and talk to me or talk to one of our counselors. You're forgiven. You are loved. I pray this morning we would believe it. Let's pray.